Amen. You may be seated. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. I'll be referencing quite a few passages this morning, but we'll be returning to 2 Timothy 3.16 again and again, so you can, you can park it there. While, while you're getting there, I want to give you some football history. At the start of training camp in 1961, Vince Lombardi walked into the locker room of the Green Bay Packers and said to his team what would become one of the most iconic quotes in sports history. Many of you probably know what it is. Gentlemen, this is a football. What's the purpose of stating this most basic fact to a locker room full of professional football players? Evidently, Coach Lombardi thought it was necessary. What is more basic and fundamental to the sport of football than a football itself? You can have football locker rooms and coaches, but without a football, you don't have a game. You can have 22 players on the football field, but without a football, you don't have a game. You can have referees and goalposts and football pads and helmets, but without a football, you don't have a game. That 1961 Packer locker room was filled with people who were intimately familiar with the pigskin, but not familiar enough that their coach didn't remind them of what a football actually was. I believe we could use a dose of that medicine ourselves. This, this is a Bible. This is the scripture. These are the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. This is the word of the living God. The doctrine of sola scriptura is one of the five solas of the Reformation. I'd like us to see that the doctrine of sola scriptura is foundational to all Christian doctrine. The first chapter of the Westminster Confession on or Westminster Confession of Faith is on scripture. And there are scripture verses that support each section of that chapter. And each of the other chapters is also supported with scripture verses. Each of the five solas of the Reformation are based on scripture, even sola scriptura is based on scripture. Why do we believe in sola fide, justification by faith alone, for example? Because that's what the scriptures teach. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, the chapter on scripture is even prior to the chapter on God. Why? because the scripture tells us who God is. Or rather, I should say, God tells us who he is in the scriptures. God himself tells us who he is in his own word, the scriptures. And God tells us in scripture that the scripture is his word. The scriptures are more fundamental to Christianity than a football is to the sport of football. God who created everything, who created you and the pew you're sitting on, tells us who he is in the Bible that you're holding. And so this morning we'll be looking at what we believe about the Bible, and as a general outline we'll seek to answer three questions. What are the scriptures? How should we view the scriptures? And how should we handle the scriptures? Let's pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for calling us to sit under the preaching of your word. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit 
the one who inspired these words in the first place, would be active in the hearts and the minds of all of your people, that we might hear your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what are the scriptures? 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God breathed out all of scripture. 2 Peter 1.21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men were involved and were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Man is fallible, but God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. God can use fallible men to pen his infallible word, and that's just what God did. Ezekiel 3, 4, and he said to me, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. The scriptures are God's words to his people. Matthew 22:31, Jesus says, And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? What the scripture says, God says. Acts 28:25, <clears throat> and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. The Westminster Confession uses the language of the Holy Spirit speaking in the scripture. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is living and active. This is present tense. The Holy Spirit is speaking in the scripture. He continues to speak these words with power. Hebrews 4.12 also tells us that the word of God discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Jesus tells us in John 6.63 that the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17.17 17 says, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Romans 3, 4 says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. R.C. Sproul had commented on a popular bumper sticker in his day. Maybe it's still popular in our day. I don't know that I've ever seen one. But the bumper sticker says, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. And R.C. Sproul was critical of that bumper sticker. At first, I couldn't understand why. He said he didn't like the middle clause. He said he preferred, God said it, that settles it. So our belief or disbelief has no impact on what God says and settles with the truth of his word. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This applies to all of scripture. It is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Not only is God's word true, but God's word is truth. That means it's true before you come to agree that it's true. 
The truthfulness of God's word doesn't depend on any man affirming its truthfulness. Psalm 138.2, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. God's name and God's word are exalted above all things. And once we understand what the scriptures are, the very words of God himself, then the doctrine of sola scriptura logically and necessarily follows. So how should we view the scriptures? 2 Timothy 3.16 says that we should view the scriptures as profitable. All scripture is breathed out by God and, and profitable. We believe that the Bible is a closed canon, which means that God has given us in writing all that he intended to give us in writing. The scriptures are God's written word to mankind. God started speaking to man in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, and we have those words recorded for us in scripture. Jesus appointed the apostles, and revelation was that all the revelation that was to be written in Scripture ceased with the death of the last apostle. So only the Bible contains the written words of God to mankind, and all of the written words that God intended for us to have are recorded in the Bible. What is the doctrine of sola scriptura? Well, here's a definition of sola scriptura. The Scriptures are the sole infallible rule for faith and practice, or faith and life. Let's talk about what that means and what that doesn't mean. First, let's define the word rule. Other words that can be used are standard, or norm, or authority. So the scriptures are an authority. When we say that they are the sole infallible authority, we don't mean that they are the sole authority. The Bible is not the sole or only authority we have. The Bible itself speaks of parental authority, the authority of the church, and so on. So the scriptures are not the only authority, but the scriptures are the only infallible authority. What else or who else can ever rightly claim the title infallible? Let's define that word infallible and contrast it with the word inerrant. Inerrant simply means that something is free from error. Can you imagine a book other than the Bible that is inerrant? Well, imagine a very short math book with only three simple math questions and answers. If there are no errors in that little math book, then voila, it's inerrant. How then is the word infallible different than inerrant? Infallible means that it's impossible to have an error. In our, is our simple math book infallible? Well, no, because it's possible that the author made an error. The author may not have made an error, but the possibility of making an error is present. Not so with God's word. Hebrews 6.18 says that it is impossible for God to lie. It is impossible for there to be an error in God's word. The scriptures are the only infallible authority we have for faith and practice. 
what then do we mean by faith and practice or faith in life? Westminster Confession, chapter 1, section 6, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life, is either expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from scripture. All things necessary for God's own glory, all things necessary for man's salvation, all things necessary for the faith of the Christian, and all things necessary for the life of the Christian. Either it is expressly set down in scripture, such as God created the heavens and the earth, or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from scripture. John Gerstner speaks of good and necessary consequence as being necessary rather than optional. His example is of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Though the scripture doesn't have John Gerstner's name in it, the necessary deduction is thou, John Gerstner, shall not kill. So not only are the things expressly set down authoritative for the Christian, but also the things that are deduced by good and necessary consequence. So for faith in life, the Christian has the scriptures from God that tells him what to believe and how to behave in a way that brings God glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. We live our lives, quorum Deo, before the face of God, and his word tells us how to live our lives to his glory. Let's finish off this section of how to view the scripture by trying to have a proper view of lesser authorities. We've already acknowledged that the Bible gives us um, more than one authority, like parental authority or church authority. We have a term for those who tend to reject all lesser authorities. The term is solo scriptura. This is the idea that it's just me and my Bible. <clears throat> I don't need commentary from other Christians, and I don't need to submit to authorities other than the Bible. Here are the problems with solo scriptura. First, you don't have zero commentaries when it's just you and your Bible. You have a single commentary, your own commentary. The second problem is that if it's just you and your Bible under a shade tree, then what do you do when you read in the Bible about submitting to elders and that sound teachers are a gift to the church and not to neglect gathering and church discipline and so on? So sola scriptura is unbiblical. And honestly, I don't think many Reformed folks um, have a problem with sola scriptura much, at least not the Reformed folks that I'm familiar with. And since you're here sitting under the preaching of the word, you're not currently exhibiting that problem. I think the problem we have is falling off of the other side of the horse. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 1 gives us a list of other valid authorities. <clears throat> Decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits. Is the Council of Chalcedon an authority? Yes, it is. Is the opinion of John Calvin an authority? Yes, it is. Is the Westminster Confession of Faith itself, the doctrines of men, is that an authority? Well, yes it is. And are private spirits, your intuitions and personal opinions, are those an authority? Yeah, yeah they are. They're not ultimate. Listen to the confession. 
the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the scriptures. Van Dixorn, in his commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith, says this, Ask yourself, are there controversies of religion that need to be settled? Then there is only one standard that is necessary for us to use, one court to which every Christian and church must appeal. Are there decrees of councils that need to be evaluated? Then there's only one canon by which these councils and their decrees, including the decisions of the Westminster Confession, the Assembly, and this Confession of Faith, can be authoritatively considered right or wrong. Have you or your friends encountered weighty opinions of ancient writers? Then there's only one balance in which they can be weighed. Do we meet the doctrines of men in conversation, in reading, and in preaching? There's only one light by which they can be examined. Are there private spirits or personal opinions in the church? Then there's only one way in which they are to be judged. There is only one sentence in which we are to rest, and that can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the scripture. John Gerstner says, sometimes people present the Bible over against the creed or the creed over against the Bible. Certainly this creed, speaking of the Westminster Confession, was not intended to be against the Bible, but absolutely subservient to the Bible and serving the purpose only of making clear in brief compass what the whole message of the Bible actually is. Those of you who have listened to John Gerstner speak um, and recognize the way he talks with his growl, some of that growl picked up, uh, adopted by R.C. Sproul himself, um, the way he said this part uh, as I listened to it was that the creeds are absolutely subservient to the Bible. Those of you who have heard John Gerstner speak can tell me how well I did in my impersonation of him. And to make clear in brief compass what the whole of message of the Bible actually is. We like to say that the confession is an accurate summary of biblical truth. But we don't neglect the Bible itself in order to read the summary of the Bible. You wouldn't neglect a great book because you read a review and a summary of the book. We don't watch movie trailers instead of the movie. So the creeds are a summary. They don't take the place of the Bible, and the creeds are not infallible, which means that they ought to be corrected by the Bible if they are found to be out of accord with the Bible. So imagine your favorite confession, or creed, or catechism, or favorite ancient writer, or theologian, or your gut instinct about what is true. If any of these are equal in authority to the Bible in your mind, Actually, if any of them are even close to equal in authority to the Bible in your mind, then you need a fresh look at the football. This, this is God's infallible word. These are the words of God. God's word is the sole infallible rule of faith and practice. What was it that Rome elevated to be equal to scripture? It was tradition. And what ended up taking over? Which was controlling? The fallible rule, tradition, supplanted the infallible rule of Scripture. Jesus tells us that we cannot ultimately serve two masters. R.C. Sproul also points out the danger 
of reason being elevated to scripture in his little book, Can I Trust the Bible? We can see the trouble with evaluating human reason to be on par with scripture. What if I said that I only believe the parts of scripture that are reasonable to my mind? Are, the, are mysteries reasonable to me? I know that mysteries are not contradictory, but can I grasp them with my human reason? Reason is a wonderful tool that God gave mankind to use in order to understand his revelation. But like Gerstner said about the Westminster Confession, our reason is absolutely subservient to the scriptures. What Christian arrives at the doctrine of infallibility or inerrancy of the scriptures because he or she has looked at all the potential contradictions and paradoxes and settled them in their own reasonable mind? No, we don't arrive at the conclusion that the scriptures are infallible because we test God's word to make sure it aligns with our reason. No, we accept and receive that God's word is infallible because the author is infallible. The Holy Spirit who inspired the word bears witness to our spirits. Listen to what the Belgic Confession says in Article 7. Sort of a lengthy uh, reading, but it's, it's rich. We believe that the Holy Scripture contains the will of God completely and that everything one must believe to be saved is sufficiently taught in it. For since the entire manner of service which God requires of us is described in it at great length, no one, even an apostle or an angel from heaven, as Paul says, ought to teach other than what the Holy Scriptures have already taught us. For since it is forbidden to add or subtract from the word of God, this plainly demonstrates that the teaching is perfect and complete in all respects. Therefore, we must not consider human writings, no matter how holy their authors may have been, equal to the divine writings. Nor may we put custom, nor the majority, nor age, nor the passage of time of persons, nor councils, decrees, or official decisions above the truth of God, for truth is above everything else. For all human beings are liars by nature and more vain than vanity itself. You didn't come here this morning to get a self-esteem boost. All, all human beings are liars by nature and more vain than vanity itself. Therefore, we reject with all our hearts everything that does not agree with this infallible rule, as we are taught to do by the apostles when they say, test the spirits to see if they are of God. And also, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Testing the spirits to see if they are of God means comparing things to the infallible rule, the Bible. So let's try to balance this. Am I saying that it's a sin to read your Bible under a shade tree all by yourself? No, by no means. Psalm 1 tells us that the man is blessed who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. Am I saying that since creeds and confessions and ancient writers are not infallible, that they have no significant value? By no means. They are gifts that God has promised to give us in his word and has given us in church history. C.S. Lewis, by the way, has a wonderful essay about the, the value in reading old writers. I commend that to you. What I am saying is that we need a proper view of multiple authorities, with one of those authorities being supreme and infallible and the ultimate judge over all other authorities. 
God's name and God's word are exalted above all things. So how should we handle the scriptures? We've seen that what the scriptures are, how we should view the scriptures. Now we move to the application of how we should handle the scriptures. First thing to say is that we should handle them in light of the truth about what they are. Listen to Isaiah 66 too. All these things my hand has made, and so all things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Our attitude in handling the scriptures is crucial. God will look on the one who is humble. We all have words that form in our minds and that come out of our mouths. God has not exalted his name and the words of man above all things. God's words are higher than your words, and your words are lower than God's words. Keep that in mind and be humble before the word of the Lord. One other thing to keep us humble is our ignorance. How many things are taught in the Bible? How many specific propositional truths are taught in the Bible? Well, there are upward of 31,000 verses in the Bible. How many truths are represented there? How many do you possess? In a short statement regarding the Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy, R.C. Sproul says, Holy Scripture, being God's own word, written by men prepared and superintended by his spirit, is of infallible divine authority on all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. God is omniscient. Think about that. He knows everything. God in, is an expert on every subject. Even when God makes a passing comment on a topic in Scripture, his passing comment is more authoritative than a thousand human writers. His word, properly understood, of course, is of infallible divine authority on all matters upon which it touches. God has an ocean of teaching in his word for his people, and the best of us have but small cups of water. Why is this important? Well, to guard against erroneously making these kinds of statements. The Bible doesn't say anything about this topic. The Bible clearly doesn't say one way or the other on that topic. How well do you know your Bible? Now, the Bible does say that the secret things belong to the Lord. The Bible is a big book, but it's not that big. The word is a lamp to our feet, and we're called to walk and explore. Proverbs 25.2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. God has not revealed in Scripture an answer to every question we might have. But <clears throat> what has been revealed belongs to us and belongs to our children forever. In Scripture, we have a, a lasting legacy to give our children. And think of that in light of Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Sola Scriptura, understood rightly, includes tota scriptura, which means all of Scripture, the whole counsel of God. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, Matthew 4.4. 4. All the scripture, that means we need to be humble students of the entire Bible. I'm not looking for hands, but how many of you have read the whole Bible? How many of you read it more than once? 
Imagine a well-seasoned Christian who's read his Bible 100 times. On round 101, will there be anything new for him to learn? Sinclair Ferguson comments on how much more useful he would be to the kingdom if he knew his Bible better. Back to Isaiah 66.2 and our attitude approaching the Bible. Being contrite in spirit, not only are you finite and limited, but we are also sinful. The Bible says that it's impossible for God to lie, and it says that all men are liars. Remember the Belgian Confession says that we're all liars by nature and more vain than vanity itself. Our sinfulness ought to result in a contrite spirit before the Lord of glory and, and trembling at his word, Isaiah tells us. There are places in scripture where God speaks and the ground trembles. God is speaking present tense in the scriptures and the proper attitude of sinful man is to tremble at his word. Holy reverence when the thrice holy God speaks. Getting back to 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So regarding teaching, we sometimes speak of whether or not a person has a teachable spirit. Well, um, you may have trouble learning from someone who you don't consider an authority. Maybe you don't like that teacher or this teacher. But God is the supreme authority, and every Christian must have a teachable spirit toward God's word. And then for reproof, what does the word reproof mean anyway? The word means to rebuke or to criticize for a fault. God's word is profitable to rebuke us for faults that we have. And then for correction, our minds are full of incorrect thoughts. God's word is profitable for correcting the incorrect thoughts and beliefs and behaviors of the Christian. Then for training in righteousness, when God justifies a sinner, he begins the process of growing that Christian into Christ-likeness. God's word is profitable for training us in righteousness that God's word works into us the training for righteousness that we work out by the power of his spirit. And then that the man of God may be complete. God's word can fill you to completion. Though, obviously, in our frailty, we only make small beginnings. The goal of the Christian is completion, which we will have once we're delivered from this body of death. And then equipped for every good work. God's word equips you, not just for some good works, but for every good work. And without the scriptures, you're ill-equipped. We're called to be doers of the word and not hearers only, James 1.22. Jesus says in Matthew 7.24, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house upon the rock. So then scripture is true, even if you don't agree. Scripture is profitable, even if you have friends or family that mock the Bible. Scripture is our infallible teacher, even if we are poor students. Scripture criticizes our faults, even if criticism is deemed to be unsafe or unkind. Scripture corrects us, even when in our pride we hate to be corrected by anybody. Scripture is to train us in righteousness, even if we think that training sounds more like law than gospel. 
Scripture is profitable for equipping us for every good work, even if we're lazy and we don't want the equipment. So in conclusion then, why did God give us the Bible? Why did God speak to Adam in human language? And why did he give us his special revelation? He wanted to communicate his will to us and to communicate it clearly. If you're not a Christian and you haven't repented of your sin and trusted alone in Christ for salvation, then listen to what God says in Acts 17.30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Sometimes people say, well, that's just what the book of Acts says, or that's just what Peter says, or that's just what Paul says. Some people try to get away from the authority of the scripture by saying that, oh, it was the human author that said that. Well, yeah, it was the human author that said that. But that human author was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and his words are God's words. So listen to what God says. God commands all men everywhere to repent. And to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, I offer to you the words of one of my favorite hymns. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said? to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Sola Scriptura is foundational to all of the solas. Because of God's infallible word in Scripture, we know that sinners are saved by grace alone. Because of God's infallible word in Scripture, we know that sinners are saved through faith alone. Because of God's infallible word in Scripture, we know that sinners are saved in Christ alone, and because of God's infallible word in Scripture, we know that sinners are saved to the glory of God alone. And all of this is according to the Scriptures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. We pray that the chapter and verse in Isaiah would be true of us, that we would be humble contrite spirit, and that we would properly tremble when you speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Matt. Well, I invite you to stand our hymn of response is before the throne of God above, hymn number 277. <laughs> 